0: You know we had bear encounters we only had bear spray and we had bears circle us and um charge at us and oh. you know gnash their teeth and we didn't have any way to defend ourselves except bear spray we only had one can of bear spray
1: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 118, Rowan Dial, Alaska Mega Adventurer and Pack Rafter. Hi, friends. Before we start the main part of the show today, I wanted to remind you today is the last day ...that you can get in your entry to win the lift ticket to Eldora Mountain Ski Area. All you have to do is send an email to contest at adventuresportspodcast.com. And if you'd like to improve your odds of winning, refer a friend. And when they send us an email, copy you and say referred by you, then you get entered three more times. Of course, they can do the same thing to get entered three more times themselves. So make sure you get your entries in. Today is the last day... And we're excited to give away a free lift ticket. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, I have Roman Dial with us. Roman is here to talk to us about Alaska adventure, but he has a lot of experience with amazing adventures all over the planet. He uh, was a National Geographic explorer. He's done a lot of canopy field work in Australia, Borneo, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., and he loves pack rafting. Matter of fact, he knows Steve Fassbinder, who was on episode 57 that told us all about pack rafting and the fun there. Roman is a professor at Alaska Pacific University. He has a Ph.D. in biology. And a master's in math, and so he does a lot of field work as well. Roman, we're excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Curtis. It's glad to be here. So, Roman, I, I hit a few bullet points, but will you fill the listeners in on your passion for Alaska adventure?
0: Sure. You know, I've, um, I've lived in Alaska since I was 16, and so I guess that's kind of going on 40 years now, and I, I really think it's the, the best place in the world for wilderness adventure. And I've, I've traveled around the world looking for places that would be better. But Alaska is the best because it's politically stable. Um, they speak English. It's truly wild. It has great animal trails, you know, like wild animal trails and not that many human trails. It's got beautiful mountains and it has wonderful rivers and, uh, and coasts and, What I really enjoy is linking all those together with big landscape crossings.
1: Roman, I made it up to Alaska in 1997. It's been a while ago, and I really enjoyed the trip. But, of course, Alaska is so huge, we only sampled a tiny fraction of it. I know that you've spent a lot more time there. How would you describe, generally, how Alaska is different from other places?
0: Well, I think um, the way I would describe Alaska's difference from, say, most of What we call the lower 48, which is the other United States outside of Hawaii and Alaska, is that in Alaska, um, where where people are, are in little islands embedded in wilderness and uh, embedded in nature. And so when you fly across Alaska and you look out the airplane, you don't really see roads, you don't see farms, you don't see cities and suburbs and sprawling human-dominated landscapes. You see wild landscapes. Whereas when you fly across the U.S., you look out your window and you just see the human-dominated landscape with with little pockets of wildness. And it's kind of um, disconcerting to look out the window and see that. In fact, I don't even sit on uh, at window seats on airplanes outside of Alaska anymore because I don't want to look at that.
1: Right. So Alaska is so full of open spaces. Alaska always seems wild to me in other ways, too, because the winters can be – quite extreme. You have Kodiaks, you have polar bears and another variety of other animals that would, you know, potentially, oh, I, I guess I should say, if bothered in the wrong way, be dangerous.
0: Yep. Well, that's part of the um, attraction is, is it does make you feel alive to be in the wilderness. And it's not like walking on the Appalachian Trail where, you know, all you have to worry about is on your feet. It's, it's really is, it gets deep to the, to, to the primalness of being human's to have to worry about other creatures out there. And so, yeah, moose and bears. uh, I don't want to say that that I look for trouble with bears, but I do like the idea that bears are out there. I like to follow their trails, and I like to have to pay attention to something other than just people.
1: Yeah, well, it's amazing. Alaska is one of the few places left in the U.S. where you can have such a huge variety of Amazing animals and you know when we were in Alaska, we also took a ferry trip across the Prince William Sound and saw whales and calving glaciers and all that kind of stuff too, which that's the only place you can see that in the US.
0: It really is and it's just I think everybody needs to come up here and, and see that and, um, and experience it and, and I was, I don't know, unfortunate maybe to see it when I was young and I saw it when I was young and I got spoiled to the point where everything else looked pretty dull and boring compared to Alaska. I came up to Alaska when I was nine years old to spend the summer with some uncles I had who lived in the Alaska range, and I got bit by the Alaska bug, and as soon as I graduated from high school, I moved up here and have been here essentially ever since, and it's just because it's so different, so amazing, I just I can't live anywhere else.
1: So I know a lot of our listeners wonder how extreme the weather really is. Can you describe the the climate of Alaska for us? Well... Sure.
0: I, I, it's changing. That's one way I would describe it. But it's, it is colder than, than it is in the lower 48, of course. And, and in Fairbanks, it's quite cold. I mean, when I lived in Fairbanks in the eight, 70s and 80s, it was really cold. I mean, it would, I remember it got to 40 below for three weeks. So it wow. stayed 40 below for three weeks. And, and, you know, I didn't have a car and I lived in a little cabin that burned wood and I had no electricity. And so it was sort of a challenge to survive that. Um And then I live in Anchorage and I've lived in Anchorage for 25 years now, I guess. And it's a lot warmer. In fact, right now, I think it's about 45 or 50 degrees. We're having a Chinook warm wind that's melting the snow. And we have for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years just been getting these warmer and warmer winters and drier and sunnier summers. And it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, climate change is very, very real. And, um, as a, as a biologist and environmental scientist, I, I study it and I, I model it mathematically here in Alaska. But as a outdoorsman, I, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I welcome it because, uh, we have just really nice summers and, and these amazing winters. We can go out and, and go ice skating. Like I did a, a hundred mile ice skating trip last November up in the Arctic. You know, where we backpacked and we went a hundred miles. We ice skated one hundred miles with these special Nordic skates, which I use cross-country ski shoes on, and um, and we did that in two days. It was a weekend trip.
1: Wow, of the Arctic. So, ice skating—were you on a river or or how did you do that? Well, a hundred miles is a
0: long way, so we skated on rivers and lakes and creeks and um, and different bogs. I mean, in some at one point we walked. Through the snow and ice skated through marshes and walked through the snow and then got back on a delta of a river and and then skated down that delta to a gigantic lake and skated across the lake and and it was uh, just a bunch of you know freshwater landscapes that we linked up together.
1: See now, there's an adventure that we've never talked about before on the Adventure Sports Podcast. I've never heard of anyone ice skating for a hundred miles. That's awesome.
0: It was especially awesome for me to go that fast in my 50s. You know, when I was in my 20s, um skate skiing had just started and one of the one of the pioneers of skate skiing was a US ski team member named Aldun Endestat and he lived in Fairbanks, Alaska and he wrote the first book on on skate skiing and this was in the, the mid 80s and he and I skate skied across the Alaska range for about 150 miles. Up and down three different glaciers and we carried all of our own stuff and it was, uh, we did it in like a long weekend. It was like 70, 76 hours. And so, um, this ice skating trip that I did, it was even faster than that. I mean, it was a hundred miles in 36 hours instead of 150 miles in 72 hours. So it was really neat to be twice the age of my younger self and still move across, um, Alaskan wilderness even faster under my own power.
1: <laughs> Very cool. What other types of Alaskan adventures do you do up there?
0: Well, um, you mentioned Steve Fastbinder, wh- whom I know as Doom. And I first met Doom when he came up to Alaska um, with a pack raft and a fat bike. And I had just bought a fat bike. And I'd had, I'd had pack rafts for, you know, I'd been pack rafting since 1983. So i have been pack rafting for quite a long time. But he had just gotten one. And I'd also been combining bicycles and pack rafts since the late eighties, but I'd never had a fat bike until just a few years ago, like two thousand and eleven. And he and a guy named Mike Kuriak, who'd be great for your show also, um, and uh, a guy named Eric um, Parsons and Dylan Kench, the five of us, took our fat bikes and rode along the coast of Alaska down near where um, southeast alaska down near glacier bay we actually ended at glacier bay we started at yakutat and we rode our fat bikes down this beach for 200 miles and we went from yakutat to glacier bay and it took us about i don't know a week or 10 days i forget exactly but it was a fantastic trip you know with these fat bikes with their big tires and we were able to ride across soft sand and then we'd come to a big bay like latuya bay and we'd blow up our pack rafts and put our fat bikes on the pack rafts and then paddle across. And so that was Doom's – that might have been Doom's first pack raft and uh, mountain bike or, you know, fat bike trip. I know it was Mike Kuryak's first one because he had just got a pack raft. And so that was sort of the beginning of it. Um, And and so I really enjoyed that. Um, You know, so, yeah, in my 20s, I did a lot of long-distance cross-country ski trips, but we used – real lightweight cross-country skis we didn't use metal edge skis we used like nordic racing skis and we skied across the brooks range and we skied across the white mountains and we skied across the alaska range and the chugach range this was in the 80s and then i got into uh riding mountain bikes um with pack rafts and we rode mountain bikes across the brooks range in 1990 and across the alaska range in 1989 and and, and I ended up doing a big trip for National Geographic that came out in the National Geographic magazine. I think in like June, I think May nineteen ninety seven that came out. We did an eight hundred mile mountain bike and packraft traverse of the Alaska range from Canada to Lake Clark. Um, and then I was also into adventure racing, although we called it wilderness racing here in Alaska. And I started doing that in the early eighties. And um, and in those races we would start in a little town and then we'd finish in another little town, maybe 150 to 250 miles away. And the rules were really simple. The rules were start in one little town with everything you needed, including your food to get to the other little town. And you couldn't use any roads or motorized vehicles or get any help along the way. So, you know, you'd race across the wilderness and you'd have to have a pack raft. And sometimes you took pack rafts and skis and i had a partner once and he and i talked about um he was into kiting and he and i talked about he was a climbing partner an ice climbing partner and a ski partner and we talked about going up over the wrangles and flying a parapent off the wrangles down into this little town of mccarthy for the nebesna mccarthy race but he um he had some problems and i didn't think he was going to do it and so i you know i i kind of we fell out of touch and then he called me the week before the race and I wasn't in town and I was planning just to run the race on my own. And so he ended up, um, hiking up this glacier to 11,000 feet during the race and then jumping off the 6,000 foot icefall with his parapent, which is like a, you know, a, a like a parachute, the 6,000 foot icefall. And he, he flew down and the weather was bad. And he had to land and spend the night about a third of the way down. And then the next day he flew. Almost all the way down, but the weather got bad. He had to spend a second night, <laughs> and then he flew down all the way to the bottom. and um, And it's funny, like we were having a banquet; we'd all finished, and we were having a banquet when he finally came in. But when you go to McCarthy today, nobody remembers who won that race. They all think that Chuck won the race.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was it's a very original way to do an adventure race, huh?
0: Yeah, it really was. And I guess you know if you're asking. You know What kinds of adventures do I do in Alaska? And I guess that my favorite kinds are the ones that, that seem original. And Alaska, it's a big place and it's empty and, and there's still a lot of room to envision and dream up new ways to cross these wild landscapes.
1: Oh, yeah. Alaska is vast. And I think most people – well, I'll just say myself. I didn't realize how vast Alaska was until I spent 10 days there and realized that I, I kind of looked at the toenail of the giant, you know.
0: Well, you know, Curtis, I've been here for I think 40 years now or something like that. And I still haven't, I'm still not done. You know, I, I traversed the Brooks range from, from Canada all the way to Kotzebue, which is, you know, on the, on the far west coast. That was a thousand miles and I, I, I mountain biked across the Alaska range and I, and I've connected the two practically, I think, I added up all my miles and it's like 14,500 miles that I've, you know, walked, skied, bicycled or ice skated or pack rafted just in the wilderness of Alaska, not including the roads. And I, and I don't, I'm not done. I mean, there's still places that I haven't been that I want to go to. And I'm not the only one. There's a whole bunch of us who are like that. One of my real inspirations is this guy named Dick Griffith, and he's actually the one who showed me pack rafting when I was a 21-year-old kid in the first the first wilderness race in Alaska, the Hope to Homer race. He showed up. He was 55. I'm 55 now. I can't believe that he showed up at 55 and showed all of us young guys, hey, you should have a pack raft to float these rivers because we were swimming the rivers to cross them, and he was crossing them with a pack raft and then floating them when they were going his direction. Nice. And, nice. Um, and so that was, you know, A long time ago 30 years ago um and so and after he showed us that he continued to crisscross alaska on skis and then there's another couple and they're doing these long wilderness trips here with their kids who are like under six years old i think they're like four and two or something and they're doing month-long 400 mile trips and things like that or summer long trips with their kids and so it kind of, it's an addiction uh, where you do these long trips and, and you finish one and you think it's going to be satisfying, but all it really does is encourage you to do another longer trip.
1: So it's addictive. You know, we always ask people, why would you encourage people to try the sport? And I think you just answered that question. It's, it's just such an amazing life experience that it's hard to not do it once you've tasted it, huh?
0: Yeah. And also, um, I don't like to do solo trips, really. I don't, I don't do that many. I I, I can't. You know. I, I mean, I do do them, but I don't. I don't choose to do them. Um, they're not my first choice. And so I build a lot of relationships and friendships doing that. I mean, my wife and I did some trips when we were young, and we still talk about them. They were long wilderness trips, and they were really bonding. And and as a family, we've done them. You know, I I you know. Spent a lot of time with our kids when they were younger, doing long trips, ski trips, and walking trips, and pack rafting trips. And and most of the friends that I have today, my close friends are are people that I did trips with. So it's um yeah, it's an addiction, but it's also sort of a social activity.
1: I love it. I think that that's the that's the antidote to the U.S. crazy American dream that we all seem to get wrapped up in is taking time out to do something. For the longer term in nature and doing it with friends and getting that sense of community and it, wow, that sounds really refreshing.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. Elevate Conditioning's mission is to construct customized exercise programs based on solid mechanics and general progression. These allow clients to improve athletic performance while addressing limiting factors. You may not be an elite athlete. You have personal and professional responsibilities that make demands on your time. That doesn't mean that you don't have athletic goals and a desire to improve. Elevate Conditioning is here to teach you how to train your body to be the most powerful, effective, and efficient vehicle possible. Additionally, Elevate offers small group training, wilderness fitness adventures, and long-distance sessions via video. Find out more at www.elevateconditioning.com. You've done so many different trips, but I would love to hear a story about one and you know a play-by-play take us there just an experience that you thought was just completely out of this world.
0: Okay, yeah, it's kind of tough. I think I could probably the one I would I would choose would be um about 10 years ago. I did sort of a lifelong ambition, maybe not lifelong, but it was at least 20 years old and When I was starting those wilderness races, I, uh, I thought, wow, I wonder how far I could actually go if I just carried all my own stuff. Like I I had to carry all my food and camping gear. How far could I actually, how far could I actually travel? And I didn't want to forage. Like I didn't want to pick berries or catch fish or shoot animals. And I didn't, I didn't want to use a boat or a bicycle or skis or drag a sled. I just wanted to be able to. I just wanted to walk, and I didn't want to walk on trails or roads. I wanted to walk across wilderness. And uh, and I, I figured that if I was going to see how far I could walk through wilderness, then I should pick the wildest place in the United States, the wildest place, Alaska, to do that walk. And so using GIS, you know, the computerized mapping uh, approach, I and uh, a former graduate student and I, we found the most remote place in Alaska and it's in the northwestern part of Alaska. And, and by remote, I mean the place farthest from a road and far, farthest from a village. And so um, I found that spot and it was 119 miles in every direction. The nearest place in any direction was 119 miles away. I mean, some places were more than 119 miles away, but, but that was it. And so just sort of to let you and your listeners kind of know how far away that is in the United States in the lower 48, the most remote place generally considered to be the most remote places in Yellowstone. Now actually it's just right outside of Yellowstone National Park and, um, and that's only 20 miles. The farthest away you can get from a road or a village in the lower 48 is 20 miles. And wow. so what we're talking about is something that's six, six times as far and so what I wanted to do was walk to that most remote place and I wanted to walk there by fair means and I by that I mean I wanted to carry all of my food and all of my equipment and not carry a raft or a pack raft not have any skis or drag a sled carry everything and walk to that most remote place and then walk out and and find out how far could I walk carrying my own my own stuff and I'd when I was a math major, when I was a math I was working on my master's degree at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks and I was doing those wilderness races in my 20s, I came up with a mathematical model that predicted how far I would be able to travel carrying all my own food and knowing how much gear I would have, but it took 20 years before I found anybody else who was interested in that. Back then, nobody was interested in it. In fact, the adventure racing craze, which is passe now, hadn't started. Pack rafting was considered sort of not even something less than a fringe sport. Um, taking bicycles, uh, like fat bikes off trail and into wilderness, pff, nobody even had thought about that. So this was a long time ago, and it took 20 years or so for me to find people who thought, Hey, hey, you know, like the lightweight, uh, the third or fourth version of the lightweight backpacking revolution finally came around and I found some people who were interested in going to the most remote place by carrying all your stuff. And and so I was able to realize this dream that I'd had. I, I got this former graduate student of mine named Jason Gack. And then I met a guy on the internet and um, his name is Ryan Jordan. And he had this backpackinglight.com site, which was pretty interesting. And there was a whole community of people who were into Lightweight hiking, kind of um, this a craze that had been established by Ray Jardine, I think, in the 90s. And we'd already been doing lightweight, um, you know, hiking and wilderness travel in Alaska since the 80s. But we're just not as famous up here as the lower 48 people because we just do it for ourselves. We don't do it to try to get famous or make money. And um, we do it because we love it and we have to travel light, I mean. And so I'd written this mathematical model um, that kind of said, you know, how far you could go per day as a function of how much gear you tra- carried. And, um, and I applied the model and it looked like for me, you know, I don't know about you, Curtis, or anybody else. But for me, knowing myself, I should be able to go about 650 miles in one go carrying all my food. And so I got Jason and this guy, Ryan Jordan. Who, whom I'd met on the internet, and I kind of invited Ryan tongue-in-cheek because I didn't think he'd really come, but I said, hey, I've got this plan to cross Alaska's Arctic and go to the most remote place that we've pinpointed there, the most remote place in the United States. Would you like to go? And and he said, yeah. And then I was like, I didn't know the guy. You know, I'd never met him.
1: <laughs>
0: and, uh, and, but what was really cool about him is that he was a gear maven. You know, he, he knew all the latest, lightest gear. In fact, he was designing and manufacturing lightweight gear and he, he knew all the cottage um, industry uh, folks who were making, you know, new novel equipment out of um, what was then very um, original fabrics like Cuban fiber. You know, this is 10 years ago. And, um, and so he, he helped put together a super lightweight kit and, um, and he wanted to come and he came along and his, his approach was to be like a solo hiker. And see, I don't really do much solo hiking. Like most of the trips that I do, I like to do with other people so we can travel even lighter by sharing a shelter by, um, like when I travel with my wife, we can share one container. We might just eat out of a, a cook pot. Sometimes Peggy and I, we only take one spoon and we eat out of the cook pot and share the spoon. And when we were younger, we might just take one toothbrush and we, <laughs> we did trips where we only took one sleeping bag. We would drape over ourselves and one pack raft. And so by sharing, you could we could go really light. There's really like here's how you can go light. You can um, you can do without. And I think that's the best way to go light is to know what it is that you need. We, we tend to pack our insecurities. What you put in your pack is the stuff that you feel like you can't do without. And the reason you feel like you can't do without is you're afraid to be without that stuff. So you're really, when you're pack, you look inside your pack, what's in there are your insecurities. And my biggest insecurity is food because I've run out of food in my youth on a few climbing trips. I did go through a climbing stage too. And, um, and I just hate to run out of food. So I tend to go a little heavy on food. But I know that I can get away with um, not bringing a lot of stuff. So number one, if you want to go light, you just leave stuff out. And then number two, what you want to do to go light is uh, have the stuff that you do bring do double duty. So for example, if you bring a foam pad to sleep on, you should be able to pull that right off the top of your pack. And sit on it like a chair during the day and then maybe stick it inside your pack to be a frame. Or if you're pack rafting, use it as a seat for your pack raft. If you are pack rafting and you've got a paddle, we'll use the paddle as the center pole of your megamid style shelter. And this, you know, megamid style shelter is a floorless tent. So, I mean, I could go on for a little while about gear and its multiple uses, but that's another way to save weight. And then the third way to save weight really is to share you have with the people who come with you so you can you can just use that synergy to go lighter so jason and i we shared a tent we even brought just a quilt that we slept under we shared one quilt so we could not bring two sleeping bags but just one quilt and we had one big cook pot that we cooked out of and um between the two of us we each carried what the ultralight community likes to call the base weight we each carried about you know 10 to 12 pounds of gear. And then I don't remember what Jason started with, but I started with 42 pounds of food. And so basically, um, my gear weight was under 60 pounds for a, uh, a three, what we planned as a three week trip to, to walk 625 miles is about how far it looked.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Three weeks, 625 miles. So 30 miles a day. Well, In the beginning, with those
0: heavy packs, we only made 10 to 15 miles a day. And remember, we're walking up here in Alaska. uh, There are no trails that are human. The only trails that we walked on were animal trails, like bear trails and caribou trails and moose trails and gravel bars. And we had to look where to go. We couldn't just blindly follow along. We had to read the landscape and choose our own route. And so... In the beginning, with the heavy packs and the river crossings, we did a lot of river crossings. We went pretty slow. But by the end, well, a week into the trip, Ryan, um, twisted his ankle. Oh, and, no. he, and we had to, we had, we had a satellite phone. He had a satellite phone and he was, he was, um, calling in dispatches with his satellite phone for a blog. And, um, and he twisted his ankle. So we had to use a satellite phone. And call a bush plane in to fly him out. And he was camping on his own. He wasn't sharing anything with, with, um, Jason or me. Jason and I were just traveling as a team, but, 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 Ryan was along with us doing his own thing. I mean, we, we camped together. But we, we didn't share food or shelter. So he flew out after about a week. And then Jason and I continued and, um, and I took the satellite, we took the satellite phone from Jay, from Ryan to use his, uh, emergency, but we also I, I started calling in blog reports. It was the first blogging I'd ever done. And then um Jason had a girlfriend and I'd call my wife every day or two and talk to her on the SAT phone, but Jason he missed his girlfriend just too much and he wouldn't call her. He was afraid that it would, you know, make him miss her even more. <laughs> Getting all freaked out because she didn't. She thought, What Jason doesn't like me anymore, he's not talking to me. And I said, Jason, you got to call Joey and talk to her. She misses you and she doesn't know why you're not talking to her. This is what my wife Peggy told me. And so, when we got to the only village that we walked past, and that was Anaktuvik Pass, and we'd put that on our route because we didn't know if we'd actually make it the whole you know 625 miles. And Anaktuvik Pass was at about like 575 miles or something like that. And, uh, and when we got there, Jason's like, you know what? I'm flying out. I got to go see Joey and I got some things to take care of. So he flew out from Anaktuvik Pass, this, this mountain Eskimo village. And then I walked from there to the Alaska pipeline, the Dalton Highway. And um, so just to sort of let you know, you were asking how far we went each day. The last 72 miles, you know, I walked in a day and a half.
1: Wow. That's a lot of distance. Yeah. I think it's, it's amazing to even know that humans can pull something like that off. But I, we've talked to a lot of through hikers and, uh, the body builds up the strength to do it over time. And yep. It does.
0: Yeah. And, and you get like by that time, remember at the beginning, my pack was close to 60 pounds. But when I finished, you know, all I had left was that. You know 12 or 14 pounds of actually it was like 12 pounds of gear on my back because i ate pretty much all my food i did have a pound and a half of food left but um but yeah that was uh you know that was a pretty extreme trip and we swam rivers like really big rivers we that you had to swim you know and you couldn't wade them you had to swim with your backpack on and uh you know we had bear encounters we only had bear spray and we had bears us and um charge at us and oh. you know gnash their teeth and we didn't have any way to defend ourselves except bear spray. We only had one can of bear spray and we had multiple bear encounters where in any, like early on we could have used up our, we had one bear can bear spray. We could have used that and then we wouldn't have in it half it. And we,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when do you spray, wait, wait, wait.
0: Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what we did. and And I mean, we got to the point where, Jason and I, we would see bears far off, and then we would hide. And we'd get down on our hands and knees or crawl behind terrain obstacles to hide ourselves from the bears. Because whenever a bear would see us, it would just come running over across the tundra, charging right for us. And it was just really disconcerting and nerve-wracking, and it would force us to walk out of our way. So it was a real challenging trip. I mean, um, start with a heavy pack, end with nothing Um find your way across trackless wilderness um in a, in the most remote place in all of the United States swimming big arctic glacial rivers trying to hurry and get out before the notorious mosquitoes emerged you know Alaska gets really bad mosquitoes like one time in the arctic i uh had a bad mosquito problem and i i i had long pants on they were so bad i was completely cl- covered in clothing and i I swatted on my lower leg, down by my shin, just one hand, Curtis, one hand, one swipe, no smearing, and I counted 94 mosquitoes
1: on my hand. (laughs) That's amazing. You know, I saw a a cartoon once about the Alaska mosquitoes, and two mosquitoes were in a tent looking at a guy sleeping, and they said, should we uh, eat him in here or carry him outside the tent? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. So how do you survive that kind of? a mosquito attack. I mean, it could kill a person.
0: Yeah, well, I just I I don't go where the mosquitoes are. Like that was the only trip I purposefully went during the height of mosquito season because I wanted to see these huge caribou aggregations of the porcupine caribou herd. When the mosquitoes get really bad, the um caribou, they line up like wind vanes near the coast where the cold air comes off of the Arctic Ocean and blows the mosquitoes away and I wanted to go see, you know, these hundred thousand caribou all lined up there. And so that's the reason I went there. And and what you need is a head net and some bug dope and a lot of patience and the ability to build fires, um, you know, in the evening to kinda of get close and chase the mosquitoes away.
1: Wow. While doing your holiday shopping this season, be sure to stop by 180tack.com and pick up a camp stove for the adventurer on your list. The 180 stove and 180 flame are made right here in the United States and are sure to make your loved one a happy camper. Visit 180tack.com today. Well, what advice would you have for people that might be interested in some of these sorts of adventures? I mean, these are epic adventures that you're talking about here. How would someone even get started putting together a trip like that?
0: It it kinda depends on the person. There are there are some people who will probably never be able to do an epic adventure anywhere and, and they you know, they that's that's fine, you know, and they um you know, they can walk on trails and visit Yellowstone um and the appalachian trail and uh and then there are other people who uh, there's this guy I, I can't remember his name right now but he's from australia and he wanted to cross the brooks range and australia and alaska are very different and this guy was a young man and he came up to alaska and he was going to do a traverse of the brooks range from uh, east to west and he came up and the first time he tried it he couldn't i don't think he he flew in and he was so afraid of the wildness that he called for the pilot and the pilot came and picked him up and he flew back out. Wow. So he, he planned and he came back two years later and he tried it again and he I think he may have come with a partner and he walked for a ways and he, he hurt himself and realized, you know, I'm not ready for this and he flew out. And then he came back on his own and he ended up traversing the whole Brooks Range, which, which Curtis will become, that will become the sort of Appalachian Trail of the future. Like the Appalachian Trail in the 70s wasn't such a big thing. In the early 70s, there was only one person who'd walked the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Pacific Crest Trail. And nowadays, there are people who do all three or try to. There's people who've done all three like in a year. So, But in the early days, there weren't very many people, and that's where Alaska is right now. It's the future of through hiking or through wilderness travel is Alaska. And this guy from Australia is an early pioneer of it. And he came up on his third try, and he started near Canada. And he went all the way across the Brooks Range in 30 days, which is amazing. In one month, he went a 1,000 miles. Wow! So um what you asked, what can people do? Well, okay, just like you, people can come up for a, den- a 10-day trip and get a taste of Alaska and take the ferry across Prince William Sound and go to Denali National Park and get a backpacking permit and a bear barrel and go in the backcountry and learn how to cross rivers and deal with bears and go to McCarthy and and hang out there and meet people of like mind and maybe do a, a longer trip with a pack raft out of McCarthy, like get together with Kennecott Wilderness Guides and learn how to pack raft. And then on your next trip, you could come up and maybe do a trip that includes a pack raft and and do one of the classic 100-mile wilderness race routes, you know, like Hope to Homer or Nebesna to McCarthy or, um, you know, Eureka to Talkeetna and just check out the Alaskan wilderness for a week or two and see if you like that and, and if you can do a week or two trip then then come up for a month and, and do um, link together a bunch of those trips. So it's basically like anything else, you have to find out whether you like doing it and then build up a level of experience doing it. It's it's quite difficult. There's very few people who can come up and do, you know, a big epic adventure on their first trip to Alaska.
1: So it really is a matter then of starting with smaller steps and building up the knowledge and the skill and the strength and and, uh, then getting more epic as the years go by.
0: For most of us, yep. There are people who don't need to – I mean there are those special gifted people who are able to to bite off a big chunk and choke it down, but um, those people are few and far between.
1: Well, speaking of ways to get started – um, you mentioned before the show that you actually have a book on pack rafting. Tell us about that.
0: Sure. In Alaska, the real key to doing long wilderness trips, and by long, I mean anything over three or four days and maybe 50 miles. The real key is to get a pack raft and a pack raft is a, a small, lightweight, inflatable boat and they usually weigh under about 10 pounds. And the best ones I feel are made by Alpaca, but there's other brands. And I'm not, you know, I'm not affiliated with Alpaca. You know, they don't pay me. They don't really give me much gear. They don't, they used to give me gear in the early days when I helped them design boats, but not anymore, but they still make the best stuff. And by having a pack raft, a river is no longer an obstacle. It's actually a neat way to travel, but I get tired of being on a river. The views are kind of boring. You're just kind of at the low point looking up. I like to climb mountains and I like to hike over mountain ranges. And then float down the other side. So with a pack raft in Alaska, you can walk across a mountain range, over the mountain range, get in a river, float down the river for a day or two, get out of your boat, hike up over a mountain range, hike down the other side, get in a river, float it, and do that day after day. So um, for me, my favorite kinds of wilderness trips are about half walking and half pack rafting, but I don't do it like, you know a 50-mile walk followed by a 50-mile pack raft. I like to do like a 10-mile walk, a 10-mile pack raft, a 10-mile walk, a 10-mile pack raft, and a 10-mile walk. I like to mix it up.
1: So the name of your book is Pack Rafting! with a subtitle, an introduction, and how to guide. How can people find your book?
0: You know, it's on Amazon.com. They can also, if they'd like, they can email me at raftpacker, so, a raft packer is like somebody who's packing a raft. A raftpacker at gmail.com and uh, PayPal me, and I, I'll send them a book any place in the world for $25.
1: Very cool. So, that was raftpacker at gmail.com? Yep. Was there an A in front of that or just raft? Just raft. Raftpacker at gmail.com. And we'll put that in the show notes so that uh, everyone can find it there. How else can people follow you in your adventures?
0: Well, I was, you know, for a while I was making YouTube videos. You can watch a bunch of pack rafting. They're crude, but they're kind of fun and informative sometimes. Um, YouTube videos under Roman Dial um, for pack rafting because I was I, I liked making them. I don't do it anymore. Um Make those videos. I also I also blog occasionally at it's called the Roaming Dials R O A M I N G the Roaming Dials and. And I I, I think blogging, you know, I I like to write, but I also feel that a lot of us use the internet to get information. And if you can post information on the internet, it's sort of a way of giving back. So I try to post information about places to go in Alaska and ways to get there. And so I try to put useful information there as well.
1: So if someone just Googles the roaming dials, they'll find your blog. They should. Yep. Very cool. Well, Roman, you also are a professor at Alaska Pacific University, and you were telling me before the show that it's uniquely situated for you know being in the wilderness. Give us a, a sound bite about that.
0: Yeah, Alaska Pacific University is like the perfect school for an outdoor kid who wants to come to Alaska and get a college education and a good education that they can use in their life later, like quantitative skills gis skills writing skills it's a small private liberal arts school that also has an outdoor studies program built into it so they uh students can come and and use the alaskan wilderness as part of their classroom and then actually get an education that's valuable and useful later on in life we have a month-long pack rafting class where we we learn to do day trips with our pack rafts and then overnight trips and then we do a a 10-day expedition across a mountain range. Usually it's about 150 miles long, no trails um, over glaciers and mountains and down rivers and through forests. It's it's a pretty neat experience for a lot of the students we have.
1: Oh, it sounds wonderful. The the chance to learn firsthand from the Alaskan wilderness as well as from the college. Yeah. (laughs) That's neat. So, Roman, can you close us out with a funny story about some of your adventures? Uh,
0: Yeah, here's the... This is, I, I guess it's kind of a funny story. I, I, I did an, uh, early on I did a, uh, one of the wilderness races. It was long. It was about 235 miles and it was across the Alaska range and my partner and I had, um, brought skis and pack rafts. So 235 miles across the Alaska range and we'd, we'd hiked up to the mountains and skied across glaciers and wrapped it down and did it again up another mountain range. It took longer than we expected and we were sort of running low on food and we were camped up on a glacier on the bare ice and we were sleeping on our pack rafts. They were flipped over inside this floorless tent called a Megamid. And unfortunately, my pack raft was touching the side of the, the shelter. And, uh, and it was raining all night and blowing and water ran down the shelter and it filled up my my raft where I was sleeping with it upside down. And, and I woke up in a puddle of cold icy water. And uh and I I thought this is miserable and I woke up shivering, hypothermic and I asked my partner, you know, "Hey, hey, look, uh, are you dry?" And he's like, "Yeah." I said, "Look, I am in a puddle over here. I am cold, wet, and miserable. Could I get on the raft with you? With you on your raft?" And he said, "No." I said, "Well, why not?" <laughs> and he said, "Well, we'd both be cold, wet, and miserable." <laughs> I sort of shivered and I was kind of irritated. That he'd said that. And, and then about two days later, we were laying down in the tundra. We'd hiked off the glaciers and we were laying in the tundra and, and we'd kind of run out of food. It took us longer to go as far as we'd gone than we thought it would. And I pulled out this soggy bag, sog, soggy Ziploc plastic bag with some jerky and peanuts and raisins. And, and my partner goes, hey, is that, is that food you've got there? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He goes, hey, I, I'm all out. Could I? I'm really hungry. Could I have some of that? And I said, no. Then we'd both be hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's kind of a funny story. I did share it with him. You know, he goes, oh, I'm really sorry about that. I felt bad for the last couple of days that, uh, you know, I felt bad for the last couple of days. I didn't let you get on my boat, but yeah, blah, blah. And I didn't.
1: <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, Roman. We need to have you on the show again. I think you have so many stories to tell, and we've hardly scratched the surface. Thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, this was fun. It's nice to reminisce about those old stories. Yeah, my pleasure.
1: And for all of our listeners out there, until the next show, make sure you do get out there and have some fun. forget to enter the contest for the free lift ticket to Eldora Ski Area. Just email us at contest at adventuresportspodcast.com.